was about first? Um, so I did my PhD. I started in 20, 2007. I started my PhD in 2007 and um, it was in the Acoustics Research Centre at the University of Salford near Manchester in the UK. And it was attached to a government-funded project to look at human response to vibration in residential environments. And I wanted to take a more qualitative, contextual approach to understanding how people experience their sensory environments um, and go um, look around and away from the dominant model of understanding that. So that's where my PhD project came from, to really come at it from a more social, psychological point of view, rather than a technical acoustics measurement point of view. And tell me a little bit about the community that you're working with. Um, so we were looking at people who were living near long-term noise and vibration sources, and... Um, a key one for that that's really easy to measure is railway. So we ended up looking at people living along the northwest coast main line. I think a lot of that work was geared around what's happening now in the UK in terms of high speed two being delivered um, and the disruption and change that comes with a major infrastructure project. Um, the other thing with the research was that in the UK, I'm not sure what it's like now with Brexit, but the EU standards are really important and there wasn't a standard at the time for vibration. So a lot of the work was trying to develop that standard that then people then use across various industries to propose and develop major transport infrastructure projects and housing developments alongside those as well. So there was that component of it going on. So, um, yeah, and it was tricky to do noise and vibration sources that were temporary or unpredictable, like construction sites, which are actually some of the really most disruptive things to live with. Um and trying to look at those is really quite difficult. Um, and, and to say this level of vibration or noise is too much for people to, to live with, to deal with, to cope with. So there was a bit of that component to that project going as well. Um, and my research was really about... I worked on the project and then I worked on my PhD, which was quite a challenge. Um but was to develop, a, on the project, it was to develop a, a social science survey to measure, a, to try and get a, a rating of, like, at what point is it acceptable, um, a, an acceptable level of noise or vibration, and when when is it too much? So that's what they were trying to work out um, and, and, and map that to the objective noise levels. So at what point are people really... Our vibration levels, what point are people really annoyed by that? And that's the limit. But that's just... Um, could be really arbitrary, you know? Like, it, it, it's so subjective and it's really manipulatable um, as a methodology. So maybe if you could talk me through those two components. So I assume that one bit was for the project, which is the more quant measurement side... 
Yeah. Um, maybe talk me through how they do that and then talk me through your qualitative mm. material and how you, like methodologically, how do you do both of those bits? So the mainstream model for looking at noise and vibration levels in residential environments is to develop an exposure response relationship between the amount of noise or vibration that's measured in the environment to how annoyed, bothered and disturbed people are by that. So you ask people, how bothered or disturbed are you by the vibration from the railway? And you get a range of responses. Some people are not at all annoyed. Some people are extremely annoyed. Um, And then you plot that and you plot that with the measurements. And there was a lot of technicality to those measurements as well, having a baseline measure, putting accelerometers in different people's houses to try and get... And you know an average dose response, match those two up, and then you've got an exposure response relationship that government, industry, developers use to say, right, okay, as long as we're under this, most people are not that annoyed by it. So that's the model that's used, and they develop different ones for during the day, um, during the evening, and during the night. Um, it's happening at the moment um, in a conversation here in the Blue Mountains at the minute with the new flight paths that have been um, released and over here we're in the just on the edge of what will be the nighttime flight path and the magic number that's been talked about is 65 dB um, and that's the level at which is considered acceptable for the noise coming from aircraft coming over the Blue Mountains so um, very contentious issue um, lots of debate around it and I've been following the conversations and those conversations and the various ways that noise is contested is what my PhD was really it's really like looking at there's so much more to what people experience, the sensory environment, what the source of that noise or vibration is. The temporality-based rights of something, like the flight path coming in, is coming into an area after people have already set up residency and expect a certain um, environment. <laughs> and um, whereas railway lines, we've got a big highway going through here, <laughs> um, people do complain about noise from roads and rail, but there's that temporality-based rights that they've been there a long time and everybody uses it and there's all these different social meanings applied to it reflects way of life and stuff like that. So my PhD was really trying to get at, well, what does it actually mean for people and who they are to live where they do and with the noise and vibration that they experience? And there wasn't that much in that space really at the time, so... It was a good PhD focus. Um, so maybe if you... Um, I'm interested to come back to the airport. I think that's a really interesting one. Um, but what... So two things. Um, I want to know what we should do about it in a policy sense because it sounds like it's something very hard to regulate. But for, first, what did people say about... Like, what did you find when you did that qualitative work? Mm, I am... Um, used I looked at it through the lens of place identity and how who you are is where you are and so what you say about your environment is actually a reflection on you um so really getting into 
conversations with people and analysing what they say. So like a discursive analysis of how do people make sense of living in a place that's considered disruptive. So anything that's like noisy is positioned against what I argued in my PhD is positioned against this rural idyll of maybe like the Blue Mountains, right? <laughs> if you're not next to the highway, but um, uh, peace and quiet and that the... Um, best environment for people human health and well-being is a quiet and peaceful green leafy environment so anything that deviates from that norm has got to be justified in terms of you know you live next to a highway why why do you do that you know and the tenure of somebody's um residency came into that as well you know we don't all have choice about where we live and I wrote about compromise and um, when people make decisions about where to live, especially if they're buying somewhere, there's always a compromise and sometimes it might be an oil sauce. Um, then I looked at, well, there's these discourses of adaptation. So, well, when you first experience something, you're like, what is that? That's really annoying. This is getting on my nerves. And then people talked about learning to cope with those disruptions and then the biggest um, discourse that was used was you just get used to it you will just get used to it and it's not I got just got used to it it's you will as well it's everybody just adapts and gets used to these sounds and noises and vibrations and then um, the third discourse was um, then you don't even notice it anymore. <laughs> um, and there's, there is some research looking at how people physiologically adapt to noise and vibration over longer periods of time, um, but not really in that context of living alongside something. So I was trying to sort of get at the, this is a way to make sense of it, it's a discursive thing, but there's not really... A, does that actually happen? Do you actually get used to it? A lot of health research is looking at people don't get used to it and it actually does have a negative impact on things like um, heart rate, um, you know, just stress response really. So there's um, a mismatch there as well between what people say and then the physiological response as well. well. Yeah, I wanted to ask you about health. Like mm. what are the... People may get used to it, um, and the temporality is important. I want to come back to that because you can choose, as you say, to move to a noisy place as opposed to having a noisy place imposed on you. Yeah. I think we should go there. Um, but what are the negative effects of noise? Health, are there others? Yeah, like um, sleep's a big one, which comes back to the temporality of nighttime and, you know, disturbed sleep can have really negative impacts upon people noise sources usually come with other forms of pollution um so you've got from rail you've got dust um and there's yeah with roads you've got the you know and you've got the um all the emissions coming from vehicles and things like that so there's that kind of health component as well and then just generally um thinking about stress really environmental stress and there has to be a point at when you get you can't get used to something 
And we shouldn't. There should be. I don't know what that is, but like, you know, there's got to be a point where it's really not good for your just general health and well being. Anxiety. Um, a lot of people talk about being anxious with noise. Um, especially when it's outside of their control and they can't escape it. Like a flight path, for example. Um, yeah, but um, and there's also lots of research around noise and its effects on concentration and um, schooling children's learning. Often schools are next to really noisy things and there's been a lot of research looking at the impacts of noise on children's learning and how it disrupts learning. So it's not great for, <laughs> what for about, you. What about class? How, what's the intersection between noisy places and class? Yeah. Um, so there is a relationship. The lower the socioeconomic status of an area, the more likely there are to be disruptive noise sources, other negative environmental issues there as well. You know, like, where does the incinerator go? <laughs> where does the motorway go? You know, and all it comes back to power. And um, those who don't have power then um, get imposed a lot of, of noise and vibration and dis- dust at poor air quality, all of these different environmental conditions um they can be bought out of and they are bought out of so let's talk about temporality so i live in i used to live in newtown yeah in in st peter's which is like literally it felt like the planes were landing in my backyard i was there yesterday (laughs) watching the planes come over the park and it's like but i chose to live there yeah And, and i did all of those things that you just said i when I first got there, I went, wow, those planes are loud. And then I went, oh, I've kind of got used to it. And then I would tell <laughs> other people that you kind of get used to it. Yeah. And then we think about the Blue Mountains where we are now. And we are getting an airport imposed on Western Sydney. And the flight path is over the Blue Mountains. Mm-hmm. And 65 dB sounds quite loud to me. Mm. Um, tell me about those different cases. Yeah, I mean, it's... Um Noise and vibration and are just so contextual and place-based. You know, like when you're in the city and it's loud and it's noisy, it can be part of like the hubbub of the area and the hustle and bustle and that's the vibe of the city and that's your identity when you live there. You're like, well, I live in the city, you know, there's the plane going across. And in in um, media and film and things like that, um, you know, when people are in that sort of struggle period of their youth or whatever they're often living in like an apartment that a train's thundering past and shaking their bedroom and it's part of the the film do you know what I mean so it's like part of that lifestyle and and it's been sort of pulled into that culture that's the senscape of that place um and then you've got somewhere like here where people are um you know, moving here to have a quieter environment. Um, there's been lots of talk about noise equity recently in relation to Western Sydney International Airport and <clears throat> that the Blue Mountains should take its fair share of noise because people in Western Sydney are going to be really more affected and subjected to it, which, as we know, is more has got um, lower socio-demographic um, 
issues going on with class and uh, race and just thinking, you know, that that socio-spatial inequality is really evident, even just where, where the airport's been put. Um, so, yeah, so there's these different expectations, but there are people here that are saying, well, we should take some of that noise and six, people saying, you know, <clears throat> 65 dB is not that bad. Then there's other people. And you can see, like, there's just a variety of interpretations on what 65 dB is going to be like. Um, and people saying, well, why can't they fly some planes over? <laughs> Let us experience 65 dB. Um, but, uh, yeah, like, could it be simulated, for example, so people can ex experience it and get used to it <laughs> um I just yeah there's been some consultations and I'm, I'm just like I, I, I don't think they're going to change the fly path so it's just a case of waiting and seeing really and pro probably like lots of people will just say they get used to it like they get used to the railway they get used to the road that's that's the process that I would imagine will happen methodologically sound and acoustics and sort of cities and sociology what i mean it's not a we don't it's not like one of the main methodologies in sort of sociology or human no. geography and sound is often forgotten in these processes what's the like utility of sound and acoustics do you think what what could it reveal that we don't that we're missing out on in a kind of methodological urban sort of research sense? Mm. I think um, there's some really interesting sensory methods that could be explored further. They're really good. Sound's a really good prompt for people to remember um, what something was or is like. And um, there's the... Um, walking methods that people use to get out and about into areas that actually get people talking and thinking about and saying things that wouldn't come out in different in a survey for example <clears throat> there's that sort of primacy of the visual in culture and sound is secondary to that it's still important i had a really cool friend victoria henshaw um unfortunately she passed away a few years ago but she wrote this really amazing book on urban smellscapes and that was really interesting to think about sound when she's talking about smell because it's been sort of forgotten about as a sensory um experience of the city and she had all these interesting methodologies around how to get people to think about a place based on what does it smell like so you know if we start asking people what does it sound like here or what would you like it to sound like a lot of the consultation with communities about different places and developments are really visual and they're not really looking at sound but sound does really matter if you can't escape sound um and when I say I can't escape, it's more like you can't escape noise, the negative experience of sound. Um, people don't like to stay in places. So if you can make a really good acoustic experience somewhere, people will stick around and use a space more and can use a space more for different things, like having a conversation, um, different 
community events, you know, that kind of thing. If a place has got a good acoustic environment, people will stick around. That's one of the things I really liked about Waterloo Public Housing Estate and why, you know, it's actually really well designed in lots of ways because it's quite quiet and you can actually talk. And in the city, that's actually not that common. And all these new big buildings that are going up everywhere, they're just not acoustically designed well. And, you know, whether by accident or on purpose with Waterloo, somewhere like Waterloo, it's got a different temporality, it's got a different soundscape. And the soundscape should be um, acknowledged and um, saved, if you like, as well. It's very interesting because I did do some audio work down in Redfern Waterloo and particularly around the Waterloo Towers. Mm. When you put headphones on and you get a microphone, you listen very carefully to the sounds and my memory, my strong acoustic memory of those towers is birds. Yeah. Like the bird, there's a lot of bird noise and it's a very like natural in inverted commas place mm. which is not what you think about for this inner city public housing estate yeah and that will go because they'll take the trees you know and the trees are there and there's some really significant trees and green space um and not green space in the sense of like a square piece of turf <laughs> with some aesthetically designed rocks on it you know it's like it's actually like quite a substantial green space um and it's quite big and the roads are quieter and it's just a nice acoustic environment and you can hear people um people noise is interesting that's not something that I've mentioned as a noise source but like that can annoy people (laughs) Other people can annoy other people. And you do tend to hear, like, more people around because further up the road in, like, Redfern, there's just all this heavy traffic. You just don't hear people. You just hear traffic. Whereas when you come down there, you can actually start to hear life other than the car. Um, Regulation. So um, noise pollution and sound is becoming more and more of an issue in some way like city in Sydney. Everything from the lockout laws and the way that, you know, bands are being regulated and music venues are being regulated to more dense neighbourhoods, to infill infrastructure, to trains and trams and all sorts of stuff going in, to the removal of what we've been talking about which is like a particular type of green space a green space that's been there a long time and it's become habitat organically for animals in the context of all of that happening and what you're saying it's uh, you can't just use quantitative measurements mm. to do this how do we better regulate this stuff or what are the or just what are the challenges with the regulation i think some of it comes down to um it probably comes back to money, right? In terms of noise is economy, is capitalism. Um, and it's just all about, like, keeping the machines going, basically. And that's probably what needs to change. Because if we were having, like, a different kind of pace of life and a different quality of life, 
and cities represented something other than the economic centres of everything, <laughs> then we would start to see different soundscapes, I think, um, in, t- in terms of... It sounds pretty like, whoa, 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 but it is part of, like, the system. The no- noise represents that drive of constant money, basically. Um, <laughs> I, I think that's quite actually quite really interesting, that, like, it's the sound of capitalism, like, literally, like, pulling stuff down, building stuff, half of which you don't need... Or what's being built is not quite what we need, um, you know, toll mm. roads instead of public transport, and pulling down green space to build a different type of green space with more of this. Yeah, I mean, it, uh, it is it is like the sound it of is. capitalism. It is, and I was thinking, um, it's just made me think about. I was in Manchester a couple of months ago, and I went to the Museum of Science and Industry, and I was looking at the. Um, cotton industry exhibition and it was a really quiet space actually thinking about the sound of it um but you can just get the sense of that industry and that technology that was made and what was being outputted from those um factories was really loud and um the health impacts upon the people working there were really bad and they were just starting to actually acknowledge the sort of links in that exhibition with the colonisation of the world and the British Empire and stuff like that. So you can always think about um, noise in terms of colonisation as well. So Stephen Gapps, who wrote The Sydney Wars, a book about basically First Nation and settler conflict in Sydney, writes in there about how noisy the early colony was when the, basically when the colonisers arrived, because they would do things like fire guns or cannons off the boat at 12 o'clock every day as a timekeeping device and he said black gunpowder was just extremely loud so he said when they turned up it wasn't like they sonically turned up and they they changed the like soundscape of the of the place straight away Mm. interesting yeah it is and i think that we could do a lot learn a lot as well around looking at it through that lens of colonisation and what noise is still doing now Um, I was thinking about Redfern earlier and some of the um, like newer bars that came in and bars are really sort of signifiers of gentrification and you know visually who gets to sit at those bars there's predominantly white people everywhere and um, but I always remember there was one bar and I can't remember the name of it now but they used to sing sea shanty songs like as if they were like on the old boats and stuff and I was like (laughs) every Sunday really loud men's voices white men in a bar in Redfern a bar that had a reputation as like you know a cool first in sort of bar you know not a chain an independent one and they were singing all these sea shanties and I'm just like I can't participate (laughs) I can't participate in this. Like, what the f is this? Like, you know, and 
you know, there's no complaints about that. Like, it was just so loud. And I, it it was all this, the sea shanty songs of the people on um, sailors on boats and, you know, really, um, like, British Empire sort of sonically. And then I remember having a conversation with the owner of the Hustle and Flow bar. Um, they'd be good to chat to, actually, about noise because that's the only R&B and hip-hop bar in Redfern, and they used to get noise complaints. Um, so, you know, just thinking about who gets to make the noise, <laughs> who gets to create, take up the soundscape, um, and that sea shanty sort of song thing on Redfern High Street really kind of really upset me. I remember thinking, this is just so wrong. Like, and no one's even batting an eyelid, you know, and it's just... <clears throat> but just thinking about the soundscape, one of my friends did a really amazing PhD in Manchester about gender and the soundscape as well, you know, and who gets to make the most noise in public spaces. And It's men, right? Yeah, <laughs> very noisy. And if women are noisy in spaces, you're like, oh, my God, she's like the worst <laughs> possible example of a woman, do you know what I mean, shouting down the street or whatever. Um, but, yeah, no, it's interesting, like, who gets to take up that sound and, and gender, race, class, sexuality, nationality, um, and whether, yeah, a settler or not, you know, it all comes into the sound space. That's awesome. Any other things you'd like to say about... So this is about sound, the whole thing's about sound and the city and, you know, what we things that we don't think about when we're thinking about the city and how sound affects it. Anything else you'd like to add before we wrap up? I don't know. I mean, one of the reflections that I have had is that when I came to Australia and I was looking around for acousticians in universities, they weren't there. There's not an acoustics research centre anywhere. Um and those those standards, actually, some of those standards in the um, EU are really good standards for regulating and acknowledging noise and vibration as a negative aspect of people's environments and something that does need to be mitigated and controlled and, and looked at. And you see acoustic barriers, and there is acoustic companies here and, and things like that, but I do think that there could be more being done to look at sound from more social perspectives um like methodologies and stuff like that would be good um just to get people thinking more about sound but over like the next few years and like some of the major infrastructure projects that are being built are like what's coming with the response to climate um crisis I think the future is going to be really noisy and really disruptive and we need to challenge that idea of we will just get used to anything because we can't and we won't, so we need to go, okay, how can we push back against that and resist some of this negative, noisy, vibrational stuff that we don't really need in our lives (laughs) and actually work towards creating spaces that are really sonically nice and good for you I think that's excellent thank you so much for <laughs> no your time. worries it's good to talk about sound <laughs> <laughs>